so John, I mean, in our early days, we both spent quite a bit of time uh, chasing the elusive urban wildlife of the, the United Kingdom, foxes and voles and badgers. And I mean, I did something on escaped mink up in Scotland when they had mink farms and we've done various species of deer, stoats. Um, I went chasing pine martens at one stage. I have the reputation in Radio 4, of course, as you know, John, for chasing creatures and never finding them because, of course, they're not that easy to spot often. I'm sure you don't mean chasing. I mean, you you mean as in harassing them. No, you mean <laughs> chasing to try you mean, and observe them. You mean carefully <laughs> trying to get encounters with, yes. uh, without in hurting any animals. Yeah. I can't remember if you were a producer on the program or whether it was you or one of the other guys who sent me down into a sewer under the streets of Bristol to chase the brown rat. Um, and I was told it was a very elusive creature and you had to go into the sewers. And, and I, I remember distinctly a five-man crew turned out to put me down the sewer because, of course, it's incredibly dangerous. One, you can have flash flooding and two, you know, a buildup of gases. So they had to have a, a crew go down with me and you, you thankfully get into the equivalent of a, of a wetsuit and a helmet and all the rest. And you climb down and the first thing that I noted when I got down there was uh, actually this is an old Victorian sir so it's arch shaped and stone built um, and uh, incredibly claustrophobic and quite small because I thought these things were big enough that you could put a train through them. Uh, so, and you, I was crawling along the sewers with people flushing their toilets over the backs of my ankles and feet, and it was a very active sewer. Um, and they said the, the brown rat was elusive. It wasn't elusive at all, actually. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. It was one of the, I think, one of the creepiest things that I've ever done. But the brown rat, an incredibly successful urban species. It's the um, only animal I know that David Attenborough doesn't like. Um, so, well, it's not that he doesn't like it. I think it just freaks him a bit. Yeah, well, everybody's they, everybody's got one. I think a lot of people are freaked out by them. But anyway, we're we're not going to really talk about the, um, the the fauna of the of the UK today, although we did spend quite a lot of time chasing it. But I know you made a film, John, about the the urban wildlife of Singapore, which we're going to discuss. And just by way of contrast, a few of the things that I I know you filmed were giant otters and um, honey gliders and terebins and pangolin and crocodiles and tapirs and fish eagles, etc. So it sounds very different from from our wildlife. But the the two, I've never been to Singapore. The two things that I've read about it are, one, that it's been built on a jungle, and two, that it is an actual island. Isn't that right? Yes, it's an amazing place. It's a, it's an island and a country in its own right. And, um, it's right pretty much on the equator. Um, it's also got a huge amount of rain. So the humidity is really high. Temperature and humidity. I mean, it's often 30 centigrade and, you know, 100% humidity. I remember my first experience of Singapore getting off the plane. I thought, uh, you know, I'd spilled some water on myself and, and about 300 yards from the plane, I was completely drenched and I was just sweating. That's what it was. And, and it was just going into, not very pleasant, but it was going into my shirt. And uh, um, that was my first experience of Singapore. It is like being in a hothouse at times. Although it does, at some times of the year, because I've been there all, all through the year, it, it has a very pleasant climate for a couple of months, which is uh, more like California. Yeah. So even though it's been built on a jungle and it is an island, uh, it has a population, I've read, about 5.4 million people. Yes, it's it, it's a very busy place. Um and I really, I suppose what I like, and, and this is the theme of this podcast, is, is the idea that we all need nature. 
And uh, clever city planners have always realized that they've given us big parks and they have uh, also allowed wilderness areas to grow outside the city. You'd have thought that's perhaps a bit difficult in Singapore, but um, in fact, they're doing their best. And, and there are many areas, despite it being very highly built up, that uh, are you know, great national park areas, which they're cultivating. And uh, one would be a place called Sungai Bulu, which is um, in the north. And uh, they've just extended that to about 300 hectares. And, you know, we're talking about a, a place in the tropics. And, and as you know, Fergus, uh, Anything that has the energy, the sunlight energy around the equator and the, and the water is burgeoning with life. There's, there's a greater diversity in the tropics than there is in temperate regions. So how many different kinds of habitats did you, did you film in? Well, there's many different types of habitats, but I've heard it said that there are 40,000 species in Singapore, which wow. is astonishing, really. You know, I mean, you're, you're in a city, you're doing your daily work. I'll give you an example. You know, we followed a, a lovely monkey, which is the, the main species they have there, which is called the long-tailed macaque. And uh, the long-tailed macaque uh, has um, troops, uh, a family of about 30. And every night they will find a very big tree, one that they are loyal to, which they, is called the roost tree. And they go and sleep in it. You can see them all go up at about six o'clock in the evening, just before sunset. And they go up into the tall bowers of the tree and then they all, you know, there's a bit of fighting and scratching and a, a bit of grooming, but then they all go to sleep. Uh, we used a, a, a night vision camera to see them all asleep in the boughs of the tree. It must have been about 100 feet above the ground. And that's where they say safe. But this is right in the city, right in a, in a housing estate. I've seen photographs and I've seen film of, of uh, langra monkeys and, and macaques in India causing absolute havoc in the urban environment do they do these similar monkeys cause you know havoc in singapore they they're not too bad actually there are some uh, local people um who object to them but mostly they're accepted um and uh, there's been some problems with people feeding them and so on but if if they follow the rules and there's a big sign saying don't feed the monkeys and uh, and they don't get used to food from people they are really not much trouble at all but what I, what we did in the film and i thought was was a, a nice reflection on uh, how people and animals live together is we took that roost tree and of course in the morning they come down from the roost tree and they go to the grass areas where they feed and that's just like commuting and of course we juxtaposition that with the commuting of the office workers of the human office workers and uh, so you know long-tailed macaques go to work in the morning come down to their roost tree and that's what we followed and uh, a, lo a lot of things with social animals are um, a case of just staying with them for a while and seeing what the relationships are you've got to understand you know who's the mother of whom and you know who are friends there's uh, various uh, enemies and alliances which you don't really understand unless you spent a long time with them so we spent many days with them in the streets of Singapore getting to know that particular group there's there's several troops all around the city but there was one in particular in the in nearer the center, which uh, we got to know very well. And of course, this is one of the, the most important things, I guess, about making any documentary for television. You need to, wildlife documentary, you need to spend time either talking to scientists or researchers and deciding where you're going to film and what you're going to film to maximize because it's very expensive business. 
Yes, that's right. But we were lucky with Singapore because our production centre was in Singapore. So it's not usually the case. You have to travel a long way. Uh, but actually, we were right on top of the animals that we wanted to film. So we had, could spend the, the, this time with them. And uh, we, we also made use of some of the things that, uh, you, you know, you start to imagine uh, that perhaps they're on surveillance cameras because there's, uh, like any modern city, there's surveillance cameras all over the place. And Sure enough, you get lots of interesting behavior if you go and ask for surveillance footage of the, huh? of the monkeys, you know, because they've accidentally, they, 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 they're very curious. They actually look right into the cameras, for instance, when they see their reflections. Uh, so we got a lot of that footage too. There's just one lovely anecdote I want to tell you about the, uh, about the, the macaques. Uh, I, and it's something that is, happens too quickly to be got on camera. And only when you've really tuned into it do you understand what's going on. There's various females, and some of them are more dominant than others. And there was this sort of older female who wasn't dominant. She was a subordinate. And she was at the edge of the of the troop. And I was with her at the edge, you know, feeling empathetic, perhaps, because <laughs> I felt a bit like... And, 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 and uh, so I was looking at her, and she suddenly, she looked around. She was looking at all her sisters, and and I could see her kind of being a bit edgy. I thought, what's she doing? And she suddenly peels off and she goes under, we're by a railway bridge and she goes under this railway bridge away from the troop. And on, I followed her through the arch of the railway bridge to the other side. And there on the other side was a Buddhist temple. And on the Buddhist temple, there were offerings and some of the offerings were oranges. And she knew this. She knew that this Buddhist temple was where people were leaving fruit. Yes. And she had, looked, she had looked at the... No, no, no. But she'd looked at the rest of her troop to make sure they hadn't seen where she'd gone. And she <laughs> snuck, she snuck off to this and she grabbed an orange off this offering and, and had a lovely feast. And I thought, you clever girl, you know, you kind of, you've worked that all out and you've, you've kind of been slightly devious with your friends. And, uh, and I thought, gosh, I wish I'd got that on camera. But the trouble is it happens so quickly and you don't realize what's happening until after the event. She was very furtive about it. But that's, of course, why, why species like macaque monkeys are so incredibly successful because they can, they can live in large social groups, but they can also act very selfishly and individually on, on occasion. Yes. It's wonderful to get those sort of insights. You start to realize the complexity of, Certainly some of the, what we might call the higher animals in, in terms of intelligence and their social lives. So what other kinds of habitats did you film in and around Singapore, John? There's loads of different habitats in, in Singapore. Actually, uh, Singapore probably has some of the biggest developments in the world and, and it, it's constantly being rebuilt. If you, if you went there, uh, you know, two years later, you would see something different again. All the, all the sites are being rebuilt all the time. But amongst all that urban development is land, which is sometimes neglected. So one of the, one of the most amazing places that I found was a place which is called Dairy Farm. And it's called Dairy Farm because it was a attempt by colonials in the 1920s to bring in Frisian cows, of all things, into the Singapore habitat, which is must be like the worst Please environment for a Frisian. Yeah, they don't like the temperature. Anyway, you know, they're obstinate and, and they wanted 
milk for their tea. So they, they brought in 250 Frisian cows into Singapore and they, they kept this up for about 20 years. But that farm, that farmland right in the heart of Singapore still exists and, and it's not built on. It's, it's also part of a national park now, but, um, it was also a place where the famous biologist Alfred Wallace studied beetles. And in fact, probably more significant than you realize because it was Wallace studying beetles in that location. He found 600 species in a square mile and he found that they were all slightly different and it got him thinking about evolution and he wrote to his friend Charles Darwin about it from Singapore yes and uh, and Charles thought hang on a minute this guy is on the case you know he's, he's he knows and uh, that was the the, the letter that, that sort of bumped uh, Charles Darwin into publishing his results I think on just as a matter of historical fact I think that it was Wallace who actually came up with the theory of evolution first uh, but he he that letter uh, basically as you say, made Darwin jump and say, wow, I better get to work and publish this before Wallace actually beats me to it. Yes, and the place that he was working was was that dairy farm I've just talked about, uh, which was happened after after his uh, time, of course, because that was in the nineteen twenties, and I think Wallace was around eighteen sixties, sometime like that, yes. when he, when he was studying studying beetles there. They've also got a museum there to Wallace. They realise his his significance. But just to go back to the dairy farm, uh, it didn't work out, and um, the farmhouse went derelict in the nineteen fifties. But what is totally surprising is that that derelict land and the old farm is still there all overgrown and you can even see the stalls where they were trying to milk the cows and so on um it's an amazing story in itself actually but there are little places like that all over singapore it's remarkable that a sophisticated uh place like singapore with such an enormous population of 5.4 million people would still have a derelict overgrown farm somewhere in the middle of it well, you're right, of course, but and the the answer is that it must be deliberate, you know, because everything is is carefully managed in Singapore, and um, so uh, uh, it's it's part of a national park now, and they've deliberately left it to uh, it's on because of dairy farm. Yeah, they've left it to, not necessarily because of the dairy farm, probably more because of uh, Wallace, but um, you know, and, and you look at these places, they're like you know, huge park and you look up and see skyscrapers all around and you're in the middle of what was the original forest of Singapore. Yes. So other habitats that we found, well, I remember coming back from work one day and hearing this amazing sort of croaking. I thought, where the heck's that coming from? There were thousands of people coming past on the metro and and um, I couldn't quite identify it. And then I came to a grid and I realized that it of course, it was coming from the drains, and it, it was frogs. So uh, about three days later, we'd got permission to lift the drains from the local uh, council, and we lifted the drain, and, uh, you know, we wanted to, we put in some infrared cameras and had a look, and it was it was a whole load of frogs that were calling, <laughs> and they were using the, the drain as, as an amplifying structure for their sounds. Very clever. And that's what, I, that's what I'd heard, you know. Uh, they were uh, black and orange fr- frogs. Uh, there was a couple of rats in there, of course, an occasional... Um, python but um <laughs> you know there's five thousand miles of drains in singapore god knows what's in there so i guess uh the the monkeys were in many respects uh, easy to film as were the frogs because you lifted the drains but what about some of the more elusive species that you were chasing out in singapore well of course um one of the species we wanted to find was the pangolin which is a beautiful animal i 
I think there's nine species in the world. They're, they're all endangered, uh, partly because they're used in Chinese medicine, their scales. Um, I'm just trying to remember the biology of it, but I think they're the only scaly mammal with those sort of scales anyway. Of course, the armadillo is a mammal. Yes. But, um, also called the scaly, uh, the scaly anteaters, aren't they? And you get them in Africa as well, but there's a Chinese, yes. a Chinese pangolin. Yes, that's right. Uh, uh, this one in Singapore, is pretty rare. I mean, it's, it's been known as an indigenous species, you know, ever since Singapore was there, but it's hard to find. And they, the only way we did it, we had a very good team. We had, you know, some of the very dedicated, they, they, they spent 24 seven looking at the animals. And, uh, the only way they did it was with a night camera, with thermal cameras, which can pick up heat. And of all places, they found it on the university campus. And it was, so they've got these, what, this wonderful sequence of, of the, uh, of this pangolin. It's, it's about two feet long, this species. Um, wonderful sort of prehensile tail, a kind of tail that seems to wrap around everything. And then it's got beautiful scales. And as you say, like an anteater, it's got a long snout. And they followed this thing. And you can just see this thermal camera. And it goes right through the university campus with the concrete and everything goes up the steps, down the corridors. <laughs> yeah. And I doubt whether the students knew it was even there because it was, of course, it's nocturnal. We've got a couple in the zoo. Singapore Zoo is very good, of course. But um, to see it actually out in the wilds of Singapore was wonderful. Can't imagine it's going to find too many ants along the corridors and the, the wonderful Singapore University. Well, I don't know. I guess it's it's the way that it, it knew. You know, it was a path that it followed every night, and, and that's where they've picked it up. And presumably it was going to its foraging grounds or something. But, uh, yeah, there's lots of lots of things there. One of the most interesting animals that, that was filmed was the Kalugo. And I didn't even know what a Kalugo Never was. It's a wonderful it. name. It, no, it's, it's great. Um, I have to say, David Attenborough said it was the best Kalugo shots that had ever been taken. <laughs> right, start uh, with the spelling. How do you spell? <laughs> how do you spell? Oh Kalugo? God, uh, no. Mr. Dyslexia here is trying to spell Kalugo. It's, it's, um, it, uh, I have to write it down. C-O-L-U-G-O. Uh, right. Kalugo. Right. Okay. Never, uh, yeah, never I think so. What I think is so. it, John? Is it a mammal or an invertebrate or it's, what? It's a, it, it is a mammal. It's a flying, it's like a flying fox. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, I think it's not necessarily even understood what exactly it is. So if we look here, it says arboreal gliding mammals in Southeast Asia. Yes, I think they call them um, sugar gliders, don't they? Now, well, it's maybe related. They are also known as cobigos or flying lemurs, although they're not true lemurs, but yes. are named due to their close resemblance. Right. Um, anyway, they're pretty unique. Um, so how, and, how, how, uh, how common are they in Singapore? Well, they're very common, actually. All over the place. So, uh, just as, just as scrum, they're beautiful animal. They, 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 they look like a, <laughs> they look like a dachshund with wings. You know, <laughs> that's, that's about the size. <laughs> Extraordinary. And they, they, uh, they, they, you've got to get your eye in to see them. They are very, very well camouflaged. And in parts of Singapore, they're up the high trees. Um, and so you spend quite a while just looking and eventually you do see them. They're, they're nocturnal. And the, the, the most remarkable thing about them is that they've got, uh, uh, wings, wing membranes between their feet. And when they stretch out their, their limbs, they are like a kite. Um, I mean, it's really quite uh, impressive. And they can glide for hundreds of meters through the forest, 300 meters, something like that was one of the uh, flights that we saw. They go from tall trees down to shorter trees, and then they climb up again. Huh. Um, and then they do do more flights. And they and they're, they're obviously very 
uh, able to lift well their own weight but also i've seen babies underneath them they weigh about two kilograms so so then they also can fly with their babies underneath them so it's very impressive and uh, they obviously they've got very good eyesight uh night vision very big eyes they are obviously watching each other because we saw uh, a female land and a um very shortly afterwards a male landed right by her and she didn't like him and she was off straight away but it seems to me that that, that male had obviously been looking out for females and so they're very tuned in to what each other does they're, they're not true wings yeah. of course john i mean they're big flaps of skin between the forearms and the and the and the hind the hind paws isn't that right Yes, that's right. That's right. But then again, if you think about what a bird's wing is, it's, it's, it is an arm, isn't it? You know, so, uh, so where does a wing end and an arm begin? Yes. Um, uh, 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 anyway. It sounds like a Christmas cracker joke, that, but we'll not pursue it. Yeah. I, I, were they easy enough to film? I mean, they're, they're obviously nocturnal and, and you say you. Well, as I say, on. it was, um, it was, uh, it was the camerawoman, Claire Clements, who was, was, was so dedicated and it was her work that got those lovely shots. The other thing, of course, is lighting, you know, because, uh, it, it, it's pitch black and of course cameras need light to see anything. So you either have to use night vision cameras, which gives you a pretty unsatisfactory image because it's kind of, you know, it's just a blob really. Um, or you use lighting. We did, we did have some quite bright LED lights, but they only had to come on when the gliding happened. Um, because obviously they'd inhibit the, um, the animals. So that was quite a tricky process. And I think Claire managed to get about three or four really decent glides, which were quite spectacular. We also got some on the thermal camera and you see this kind of glowing blob move through the canopy of the trees as it glides down. Um, amazing creatures, really. I said it was on an island, uh, John. So let's move out of the urban environment just temporarily towards the coast. I guess it's surrounded by, um, mangrove swamps, is it? Yeah, I tell you what's amazing is that there's crocodiles in there, and they they've come over from um, Malaysia from across the Johor Straits, which is uh, the the uh, kind of waterway on the north of Singapore between Singapore and Malaysia, and um, the, in Sungai Bulu Nature Reserve, there are lots of saltwater crocodiles, and they are quite impressive animals. They're they're sort of maybe up to fifteen feet Huge long and very dangerous. And, Yes, uh, there's a bridge there which you can you can be right over them on the bridge, so you can get a nice close up look. You know, you could do loads of films on Singapore. There's so much there once you get your eye in. I remember on that on that bridge um, too, there were these archer fish. They can see the insects on the. Uh, what do you the call bridge. it? The uh, columns of the bridge. And they, they spit them off. You know how archerfish can see above water and they've got these curious eyes which can see above and below water. And they, they use spit to squirt at insects. And that's what I've seen. I never, I've heard about it, but I've never seen it in the wild. And that's where I saw it, which is, uh, you know, there were maybe 20 of them underneath the, this bridge. Anyway, going back to the uh, crocodiles, all you see is the big heads, Just and they spend a lot of time sleeping. They get a bit grumpy with each other. If there's two males there, they they, they can move very fast. Very territorial, of they, course. You know, very territorial, but also what's impressive is how fast they can move, You know, because you think of them as a sleepy old slow thing, just sitting all day in the water, just looking with its big eyes and occasionally blinking, and that's what they do a lot of the time. But my goodness, if you see a, another male come up, they... You know, within a, a fraction of a second, they can cover 50, 50 meters, you know, no yeah. problem. <laughs> they'd, they'd have you if they and wanted what to. Are they, what are they having? What are they eating? Because those very large saltwater crocodiles, they, they're, they're, I mean, they're not content with small fish. They need big, preferably mammalian prey, which they'll grab from the shore. 
Well, I'm sure they would do. There's some wild dogs there, by the way. But um, actually, they do eat fish, and they're quite big fish. They they look like big carp, although perhaps I'm, they're not carp, but um, they, they're very big, you know, the fish they're eating. Because you can see what happens is when they do catch a fish, they throw it up in the air. You know, they're not very good at chewing, so they have to kind of um, make it sort of fall into their mouth. And so they, they throw the fish up into the air, and that's when you see what they're eating. And, and these fish are like two or three feet long, you know, that they're eating. So in many senses, they are uh, probably one of the top predators around Singapore, are they? Yes, they are. They are. And, and, and obviously, you know, again, you know, the, the plus side of having urban wildlife is that you, you know, you, you can you can be with nature, even though you're in the city. I think we all get pretty alienated from nature. We you know we, we don't see the sky because of light pollution. We don't, you know, even just that's why we have houseplants in our, our houses, because we we have an empathy with nature. And if we don't have it, we miss it. So that's what the plus side is. The, the, the negative side, of course, is that crocodiles and people don't mix very well. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, you've got to be careful, but they're managing it well in, in Singapore. They have areas and they, and, and, and it's safe there. And, uh, I think they do have to move some of the larger individuals. They have been moved, but, um, you know, they're on, they're on it. They know what's, what's going on. And, and I think they, they understand the benefits of, of having wildlife near the city. Talk to me about the, the bird life, John, because I imagine with such diverse uh, temperatures and habitats, there's, there's quite spectacular bird life around Singapore, is there? There is. I'm not very good on birds like mm -hmm. you. That's but, why I um, thought I'd ask you uh, about there, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, you um, felt, you I, felt... they, oh, some beautiful kingfishers there. They're, they're bright orange and um, they're very large. Um, and, um, you know, that we, we saw them a lot swooping down into the water. Um, there are, is it honey gliders? And we saw, uh, e there's even an eagle, which we filmed um with using a hide next to its very tall nest was it a fish eagle or was it a, a land eagle or opposite feeding do you know no a fish, fish eagle, eagle yeah. i think there's a great deal of other bird life there there's lots of uh, wading birds in some of the reserve areas and uh, in the city there's these spectacular hornbills with their big yellow beaks that make great big nests inside some of the taller trees I've seen the, the little trail for the film that you did in Singapore, two-part film, and also in there, um, there are monitor lizards and uh, snakes. So uh, talk to us a bit about some of those kind of species. Well, there's a, there's a, um, a, a green tree snake, uh, which is a beautiful animal, um, and uh, it's... Um, very, very well camouflaged. In fact, it causes problems in tea plantations because it's so well camouflaged that some of the uh, tea and coffee plantation pickers um, get bitten by it. It's not particularly aggressive, but of course, if you put your hand on it, um, it's not so good. There is one of the most venomous snakes in the world in in Singapore, and it is a coral snake. Um, it's, it's blue and red. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, the red should warn you. Uh, we'd made another program on Asia's most deadly snakes there a few years earlier. And, um, in the museum, they've got some specimens, which one of which we dissected and its venom glands go all the way down its body. And, uh, uh the scientists who we were with said it was probably one of the most venomous snakes in the world. And, you know, why are snakes so venomous? It, it's because they're in a, in a, a war against their, prey their prey becomes immune to their venom and therefore they have to develop ever stronger venom to uh, overcome their prey and given 
millions of years that's becomes you know stupidly strong um so obviously that's happened with this species but you know it's a sort of animal that is as as pretty as a peacock and uh yet it's so venomous let's go back into the the urban part of singapore john how aware would you say singaporeans are of the wildlife that's around them i think they're pretty aware um I don't know. I suppose I'd like to flatter ourselves that, that it's a British thing that people like wildlife. And it's true that in Britain, you have lots of people in, in uh, bird societies and photo- photographic wildlife clubs. And it, you find that again in Singapore. And maybe it is partly the colonial heritage, but there's a lot of very, very keen photographers doing wildlife photography there. So there is an empathy with wildlife. You know, there's, there's a sort of live and let live attitude as far as i could see where um some people might have thought some of these things are pests but you know the for instance the monkeys are tolerated uh pretty well and, and they're there every day on the streets well i think most filmmakers and producers uh at the end of a big project like that a big two-part series on the the wildlife of singapore will have a favorite sequence so what's yours um one of the things that we film where where um the local chickens and they are the original type of hen the the wild type because if you think about it hens must have come from the wild and there in singapore is this wild chicken and we they go about the streets as you can imagine chickens do and they just you know they 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 almost seem to use zebra crossings that that careful as they go across the roads and we we just filmed a, a, a few of them um, amongst this urban environment. And it's just that lovely sort of slightly frivolous thing that here is a group of chickens that can behave like their wild ancestors in the middle of a big city. And then finally for me, what's your lasting image from that trip? Well, <laughs> one of the things I haven't mentioned is the smooth-coated otters. Uh, and they have just come back to Singapore. There's been a lot of development down by the uh, Dockland area. In fact, uh, a lot of the island has been reclaimed. Um, my dad was there in the, in the 1940s, and the Raffles Hotel was on the sea. Uh, today, Raffles Hotel is perhaps three miles from the sea, and, and uh, uh, all that area around the uh, Dockland has been reclaimed with these extraordinary buildings. There's, uh, if you've ever seen the modern Singapore uh, Gardens by the Bay, it's called, and there's these extraordinary and beautiful trees that they've made, artificial trees that are, that are much taller than normal trees and look like something out of Avatar. It's very beautiful, but amongst that. That, uh, the smooth-coated otters have moved in. Unbeknownst to the uh, designers, they've made a perfect habitat for them because they've made these nice sloping concrete banks where they can get out of the water. And they've also very kindly stocked the, uh, the ornamental pools with some lovely and very expensive koi carp, which the, <laughs> the otters <laughs> love to eat. Oh, yes. I saw, I saw, I mean, I saw one devour a, a, a koi carp in about, um, you know, 30 seconds and and in this country that sort of fish sells for about 900 pounds so <laughs> sacrilege really <laughs> it is but uh, of course the smooth college otters you know, say thank you very much <laughs> i'll have some more of those well singapore uh just put it on uh, more or less the top of my to-do list go out and visit john thank you well i think i think it's uh it is it is an amazing place and and it was a privilege really to be able to scour the uh streets uh day and night and in a way that if you were a tourist, you wouldn't do. So one of the things that this has got me tuned into is looking for urban wildlife around the world. And I was just on holiday in New York. And uh, and of course, in New York, the most obvious 
place is Central Park, which is a, a huge area. It take, takes half an hour to cycle up uh, one side of Central Park. Uh, you know, it's wonderful to have that sort of juxtaposition of nature and being able to look out onto the canopy and then beyond the skyscrapers. And of course, it's very beautiful at the moment in autumn. And they've also done it in another area called the High Line, which is a old tram line, which has been reclaimed. It was going to be demolished, but then they realized that they could just make it a wildlife corridor. It's lovely to see that people care and that they realize that we all need a connection with nature, even in the city. So you did a little bit of recording in both of these places, didn't you? Yes, we did. Uh, I just thought I'd give you a flavour of it because, of course, you've got the noise of the city all around. Let's play out on that then, John. I'm here in New York's Central Park. We've been cycling around it. It takes about half an hour to cycle along one side of it, so that's how big it is. And we can see grey squirrels. Lots of them. Lots of them. And uh, black squirrels. I saw a black squirrel once, did you? No, but I saw one that was like a ready black. A red-black one, yeah. So there's different varieties of squirrels. All of them seem to be pretty tame. I think they must get fed. And, of course, the most common is the grey squirrel, which is all over Europe now and known as the American squirrel, of course. And then uh, we've got lots of birds that we find familiar in Europe. Sparrows, starlings, pigeons. All the usual sounds, but it is beautiful here. It's autumn and the light's coming through different coloured leaves. And there's a big lake in front of me. You could be a thousand miles from any city if it wasn't for the noise of helicopters and the traffic. We're on New York's High Line, which is on 10th Avenue by the Hudson River. Um, I think it shut down in about 1960. And they decided that this high-level tramway converted to a wildlife walk. And so here in the city, you walk past lots of different plants, all the wildflowers that perhaps used to grow here once on a time, and some other things that perhaps didn't, like the Virginian sumac, which I can just see. It's all coming into leaf now because it's right. autumn. In this photo, they had the high line running. Oh, yeah. And so it, really, it looked really... Yes, Spider-Man's... In which Spider-Man game? Uh, the Lego one. In the Lego Spider-Man game, Highline features. Yeah. It looks really nice, doesn't it? Yeah. There's a green line through the heart of New York. We've just gone under a kind of tunnel between the buildings, which must have been for the trains. There's still some steel lines embedded in the concrete. We've gone past some artists by paintings, you can even buy houseplants by the looks of things, at the Highline shop. The Northern Spur Reserve, we're looking out onto the river, and there's an area which looks like lots of weeds, doesn't it, but it's got yellow flowers, things that look as if they might have been native to New York before man came here. Over on the river, I can see the remains of an old pier. This way, I can see the Statue of Liberty on the Hudson Bay, just peeping out from under a bridge. It's about five miles in the distance. An American flag flutters. Protected plants stay on path, it says. So the one obvious thing I forgot to mention, there's hundreds of people walking here. 
everybody seems to enjoy seeing a wildlife corridor running through these big skyscrapers. I have to say that although there's lots of flowers, I can see some yellow daisies in front of me, lots of grasses. There's very little obvious bird life that I can see. Maybe the city still puts them off. Just passing Chelsea Square Market. There's some workmen on another scaffolding. New, the base of a new skyscraper. They're leaning over the edge with safety lines strapped to their backs. We're going over an old railway bridge now. There's a riot of purple flowers. There's a New York oak tree. I can't imagine that it will get much bigger. It's already about 40 feet high. Just turned the corner and we can see the Empire State Building. Some very grand red brick buildings amongst the silver glass of the skyscrapers and stretching out into the distance maybe two or three miles of trees and bushes. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful thing to see plants in the city.